Hi, my name is Lauren Templeton, and you are listening to Investing the Templeton Way. This podcast is for anyone interested in learning more about investing. In this podcast, I will be interviewing some of the greatest minds from the investment community and exploring topics ranging from international markets to behavioral finance. To learn more, please visit us at investingthetempletonway.com. The information presented in this podcast or available on the website is not intended as and shall not be construed as financial advice. This podcast is produced for entertainment value. Investing is inherently risky, and I encourage you to seek financial advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Investing the Templeton Way podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Templeton. And I'm your co-host, Scott Phillips. And today's guest is Jason Sue. Jason is the founder and president of Raylian Advisors. Prior to launching Raylian, Jason was the co-founder and vice chairman of Research Affiliates, where he was on the forefront of the smart beta revolution with Rob Arnott. Jason then spun out the Asian business from research affiliates and began Raliant. Jason is very well published and has authored more than 40 peer-reviewed articles. He has won many awards for these contributions. Jason is an associate editor for the Journal of Investment Management and also serves on the editorial board for several publications, including the Journal of Index Investing, Journal of Investing Consulting, and the Journal of Investment Management. Jason is a member of the Board of Directors at the Anderson School of Management at UCLA, as well as a professor of finance. He graduated with a BS summa cum laude in physics from the California Institute of Technology and was awarded an MS in finance from Stanford University and earned a PhD in finance from UCLA, where he conducted research on the equity premium business cycles, and portfolio allocations. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm just curious how you went from a background in physics to finance. Well, you know, a lot of people in our industry uh, went from physics or mathematics into finance because uh, at the at the sort of the core of uh, quantitative investment management is really this belief that through data and through statistics applied to a large amount of data, you could identify patterns, be it patterns in how the stock market behaves or patterns in how investors behave. And uh, with those patterns, you can have an edge over other people who are not as sort of data focused and as quantitative. Mm-hmm. It is one of the three source of, sources of alpha, right? better information, a better model, or the third source of alpha would be exploiting human behavior. So that's very interesting going from physics to finance. And I know that you're well known for the term quantum mental investing. Can you describe what quantum mental investing is? I'm sure most of our investors are familiar, but if you could briefly review that, that would be helpful. Yeah. No, a lot of Portfolio managers are either traditional uh, stock pickers uh, or they're sort of pure quants who just believe in statistics and have sort of the data tell the story. 
you know, what I'm trying to do, and I think, you know, it is starting to be the the trend, right? It's a holy grail is to combine both, right? As a quantitative uh, investor, you know, someone who believes in the statistics and the big data, I have developed a tremendous respect for people who sort of have this gut intuition for how to pick stocks, how to how to pick market cycles. And it's about me trying to model what they do, try to quantify what they do, and also recognizing that there are a lot of things you can't quantify. That is purely art and not science. Uh, and so you want to bring that art into the process, right? Into a otherwise more quantitative process. And hopefully by combining the two, um, you can you know, remove some of the biases of a purely statistical-based investing process, but also remove some of the biases of a portfolio manager who may himself suffer from behavioral biases and where, you know, he he clearly lacks a bandwidth of looking at a thousand stocks, right? He can probably handle a handful. So really combining both is, is ultimately how you uh, kind of fill the gaps. What was your introduction towards investing in the markets, uh, Jason. A lot of people kind of iterate through different things or maybe they read something seminal or saw a speech from Warren Buffett. What kind of latched you into thinking about the markets and pursuing this path? So it started at Caltech. Most people think of you know Caltech as uh, you know just physics and, and math. Right? Caltech actually has uh, one of the very first uh, behavioral finance laboratory uh, where they ran market experiments, bring in, you know, undergrads, and then and oftentimes also bring in business people in the Pasadena area to play uh, the simulated uh, market games. And and I worked on the team that conducted those experiments. And that was how I went from someone who really was much more of a scientist, data scientist, to someone who go, wow, you know, uh, the data tells us there are a lot of irrational human behaviors, even by by very well-trained engineers like Caltech undergrads and graduate students. Uh, and, and and I became fascinated with, with how markets work, right? Both the very rational part of it, but also the very irrational participants that come into it. Yeah, those irrational participants are where we think we have an edge. But when you're thinking through that and this application of quantum mental investing, I know that you're really an expert in applying this to the Chinese market. Can you walk us through some advantages to applying that particular style of investing to the Chinese market and some differences between the Chinese market and developed markets when it comes to quantum mental investing? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, uh, the Chinese uh, stock market is very retail dominated. It's 85%. Uh, retail that's measured wow. by trading volume. You, you compare that to the U.S., right? The U.S. during normal times is about five percent retail trading. You know, Robinhood.com and the main main stock periods notwithstanding, and so you can immediately see, like you know, markets that are like the U.S. predominantly institutional versus markets that's predominantly retail driven, like China. One will be a lot more inefficient. The Chinese stock market uh, is is extremely inefficient, and so when you apply the quantitative techniques that includes a lot of behavioral-based factors that's trying to understand what do people get wrong, right? And what you'll see is there are a lot of great companies in China um, who are very undervalued. And then occasionally, there are a lot of uh, basically meme stocks, right? I, I call China like GameStop, you know, every day. Right? There's just going to be some speculative meme stocks that sure. rally for no good reason. 
And the, the bubble can get quite large for an extended period of time. And, and that's the kind of market you're dealing with. And that's the kind of market where you'll find more patterns, whether you know, sentiment-driven, value-oriented investing works really well in that market. Uh, and you don't expect that to change anytime soon until it transforms from a retail-oriented market to an uh, institutional market. And one of the um, aspects of investing in China that you've done a really good job of delineating is just, you know, from a Western perspective, we think of Alibaba, the ADR, and Tencent, and the big, large, mega cap, you know, tech names that are listed, you know, over here with ADRs. But you've done a good job of really breaking out the different segments of the market and looking at them individually and exploiting the ones that make the most sense from an excess return standpoint. I think you've had some counterintuitive findings there. Could you just share that with our our audience? Yeah. So there are some really interesting features of the Chinese stock market that you wouldn't expect, right? Because generally, most people would say, okay, that's a more inefficient market. And it's a market where uh, there's probably a lot of manipulation because governance is poor. Now, investors are right to say there's a lot of manipulation when it comes to uh, sort of earnings reporting. But what is very surprising and very counterintuitive is that manipulation is generally um, to underreport earnings and earnings growth, right? And that's that is very hard to believe and very hard to understand. Like, why would you, if you're going to manipulate numbers, why would you manipulate it downward? And this is because the stock exchanges in China are not for for profit businesses, so they don't just care about listing stocks. Uh, they're almost part of the government bureaucracy, so they worry mm-hmm. about if I list a company who doesn't make money or whose stock price falls a lot, um, there's sort of personal liability from the exchange officials for listing a bad company, right? There'd be investigation as to, did you take bribes? And so there's a explicit exchange rule that if you lose money for a year, there'll be a major investigation to see, well, why are you bad at running your business? If you do it again for a second year, there's sanction and you do it again a third year, uh, you're being prepared for delisting. So companies are terrified, right? And they understand there's business cycle, but of course the exchange officials aren't so patient with those explanations. So whenever they're at the height of kind of the industry cycle, they'll claw back and underreport earnings just so that there's a reserve that during a bad year, they could then use that reserve and use it as uh, earnings for that year to basically smooth earning over their industry business cycle. So very surprising finding, but uh, it is um, you know systematic and, and widespread in China that most firms underreport earnings growth. Yeah, that's very surprising. And then another aspect that I've heard you speak about several times, um, which I actually have some experience with, but just that listing in China, um, listing a company in China on one of the exchanges, the Shenzhen or the Shanghai exchange, is very difficult compared to listing in the U.S. Um, could you comment on that aspect as well? Yeah, and you know, I just mentioned that. You know, the exchanges are an extension of the government bureaucracy. Uh, and so they're not in a rush to list more companies so there's more trading volume and, and so they can earn a listing fee. Um, the exchange officials are often, you know, um, quite burdened by the fact that people want to list because their assumption is, um, you know, there are a lot of unscrupulous business operators who want to, you know, juice up their earnings, list a company and defraud retail investors. And when that happens, people will protest outside the exchange and then there'll be a giant embarrassment to a bureaucracy, right? And so uh, what the exchange officials often 
um, do when they when they see a new filing is to to you know basically sit on it for a while um, because you know if you're in a rush to 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 list right maybe there's something wrong with you maybe you're not financially stable and additionally there are rules that basically mandate a company to be uh, profitable and have a business plan to continue to grow profits uh, before they'll even consider your case. And so this is very different from the U.S., right? Because I remember seeing uh, the Lyft IPO and we're like first page, first paragraph of their perspectives is like, we do not have a business model to profit, right? So, you know, while that can work in the U.S., that definitely doesn't fly in, in China. So they want you to be already profitable and have a credible plan of sustained profitability growth. Now, of course, that is problematic in the sense that, well, if you're already profitable, and you kind of got everything figured out, right? You're not really looking for risk capital to, to help you grow, right? And if you just imagine like a Tesla uh, or say even an Amazon would have a very hard time IPOing uh, in China and, uh, and investors would have missed out on the opportunities to really participate before the company sort of got it all figured out. So, you know, China's starting to rethink that rule, but I would say its listing standards today is probably the highest um, versus, you know, anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I, I think that's often misunderstood by investors for sure. And when you're talking about the Chinese market, I think um, it's important for us uh, to sort of delineate for investors that may not understand the different markets, the A share versus the H share versus uh, ADR listed securities. So can you explain that just very briefly to anyone who's listening who might not understand? Yeah, so most of us, you know, when we think of investing in China, we think of Alibaba, right? We think of Jack Ma. You know, it's almost like, you know, you know, Jack Ma is Jackie Chen, right? And Jackie Chen used to be kind of the only Asian face we sort of recognize in the West. Um, but, you know, China is much, much, much more than these sort of big tech names like the Tencents, the Babas. Uh, what surprises a lot of people is, you know, the wealthiest guy today in China doesn't do any tech, right? He sells water. Right? There's no IP, there's no technology, right? Uh, and it's not sold to foreigners, right? It's not a big export product. It's for domestic consumption growth. And the last wealthiest guy in China sold spicy hot pot, right? Again, domestic consumption, not technology. Um, so onshore A shares are generally companies that most of us have not heard of. Um, they get you access to a lot of the more domestic economies, uh, probably a lot more what you would think of, you no. Know, small mid company that still have a lot of growth that haven't gone international. Uh, the ADRs by comparison, right? That's your Alibaba, that's your Tencent. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they're generally, you know, IPO overseas rather than onshore because they're sort of broader audience, right? They got the name recognition and they want to fetch kind of the NASDAQ like high valuation. So probably the biggest difference between ADRs and the A shares is first of all, huge valuation gap, right? You're paying for a very premium brand when you buy a Baba uh, or Tencent when it first hits the market. Whereas if you're buying A shares are generally quite cheap, even if they have phenomenal dividends, phenomenal uh, earnings growth. Uh, something else that's probably useful for investors to pay attention to is ADRs, American Depository Receipts, um, at least when it comes to Chinese companies. Um, oftentimes, are ADRs of a Cayman shell company. So think yes. of Alibaba, the Cayman entity. Right? Well, what the heck is that thing right? versus yeah. the Alibaba onshore? Well, the Alibaba Cayman entity claims to have a lot of marketing licensing contracts with the actual Alibaba who like sells all the stuff. In China, sure. it makes, you know, all the tens of billions of dollars. And all that profit is really kind of then repatriated um, to the Cayman entity through these licensing and marketing agreements. So it's sort of a wonky arrangement that 
mm-hmm. you know, tax authorities tend to want to challenge, right? Both mm-hmm. the you know SEC looks at that and say, well, are you really Alibaba? And the Chinese authority says. Hey, you know, are you trying to, you know, sort of just take profits out of China without paying taxes? Are you trying to, you know, uh, um, you know, break sort of the forex control and the foreign ownership control uh, requirements? So the ADR structure, uh, or they call the VIE structure, that's used for the ADRs, has has come under a lot of attack. And again, this is sort of a very subtle issue that most investors who bought a share in Alibaba have never been warned about. Right? Yes. And I think it just got glossed over in the perspectives. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to point out. Um, and we actually used to own shares in Alibaba. Um, and it was one of our concerns, that legal structure, the risk of that legal structure is something I think that investors should familiarize themselves with. with. Now, I know the Chinese market over the past three years, including this year, hasn't been the best place to be. Um, my great uncle, John Templeton, was known for saying bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. The time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy. Um, is it the point of maximum pessimism in China right now? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm I'm a big fan of, you know, Sir Templeton, uh, and, and I, I, I try to imitate how you invest, right? So it's maximal fear, maximal pessimism when it comes to China. And it's not just sort of Western portfolio managers, you know, Western asset owners being pessimistic about China. I was just in China, um, for about two months during the summer. And, uh, you know, I traveled to different cities, spoken with people, business owners, and I would say domestic sentiment is extremely pessimistic as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Right. Like people are not spending, people are not investing, not because they have a balance sheet problem. A lot of people go, oh, you know, you know, the real estate uh, price decline has caused a balance sheet crisis and people have no money to spend and then, you know, no money to invest. That's not at all true. Right. Like there's massive amount of savings. It's about uh, probably 30 trillion uh, US dollars worth of deposits uh, in kind of the banking system or the shadow banking system. And there's another 30 trillion in sort of corporate deposits. And that money is just not going into investing, capex, uh, household spending, uh, because people are pessimistic. They're really, really down. But if you think about it, that is, you know, if there's a catalyst, that's just a lot of money waiting to be deployed. And so I'm a big believer, you know, maximal fear is where you can learn or not just the equity risk premium, but really a lot of fear premium, right? People are afraid, not because there's sort of, you know, truly pessimistic future, but just in the short run, um, you know, uh, I think the emotions gotten the better of them. Yeah. You know, when we, Lauren mentioned, we owned Alibaba um, for a while at our firm. I think we bought it in late 2014, 15, when it IPO'd, it went down 50 some odd percent and it became a value um, stock <laughs> by our measure then. And but, you know, when I kind of trace back that period to when we sold in 2020 sometime, a lot has changed in China, just the environment. And I'm wondering, like, you've spent time there and you've got the length of perspective to make these judgments. Do you think it's still glorious to get rich in China? Do you think something's kind of changed in the social fabric, the entrepreneurial spirit? Are there things that you know, would kind of prey upon a pessimist fear, so to speak? Or are they over-exaggerated in the share prices? What's your perspective? So I think there's absolutely a shift in policy 
uh, and and China is so policy driven, and I think it's got a, a a real impact to I would say the private sector, the entrepreneurs, and uh, you know, and and then kind of the skilled laborers. Uh, but I would say, uh, and this is again where I think you know Sir John Templeton's wisdom is 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 um, absolutely critical in that. Um, sure, there's sort of shifts in the fundamentals, and that you know may be hard to predict, and you don't know whether China will zack back um, or if it'll sort of continue to trend downward. But what I think is clear is the current sentiment price in uh, such negativity. Right? It prices in the possibility and a, a probably a meaningful pro- possibility that China returns to you know the Mao Cultural Revolution type. You know, closed economy that doesn't have any competitive uh, free enterprises. Right, prices in a complete decoupling of China from the U.S. That the two greatest economic power like stop trading with each other. Right, there are these things that are being priced. There's prices in a you know invasion of Taiwan that leads to potentially you know outright conflict between China and the rest of the world. Uh, and and again, you know, those are just such. Unlikely extreme left tail black swan events, and then all three black swans are being priced in. So you know, um, prices simply reflect um, sort of irrational fear. Um, so, so I agree with you that um, China has changed, and it's useful for people to pay attention to that change and to track it. Um, but I would say what's been hyped up in media headlines uh, is is probably driving more fear than it is sort of sensible analysis. Yeah, I, I think that's an important nuance that comes through in valuations that you know skilled investors can can see. It's like, yeah, we've seen all the headlines, we know what's happened, and you know the Chinese education stocks going to zero overnight, and we know about you know the tech uh, dust up, and you know we know about the property bubble, and we know about all these other things that are keeping Western investors away. But you know that. When you get more granular, you get down into the economy, that wealth is still being created. And that means that there's an opportunity for a shrewd investor. So I'm wondering when you're you know, focused on the A shares and you're looking for those opportunities, what do you look for in a particular stock? What stands out as a sign of potential excess return or alpha generation to you? So um, you know, basically, we, we, we look at a number of uh, factors or you know, quant signals uh, that, that we've Sort of, we, we want to make sure all the boxes are ticked, uh, before we take a position. Uh, so first of all, you know, we, we, we look for sort of a blended set of quality scores, right? So we, we like firms that have, uh, you know, strong growth based on healthy margin. You know, there are a lot of unhealthy growth in China that's driven by leverage and those stocks we, we shy away from. They're just too exposed to, you know, the whims of Beijing in terms of injecting or taking away liquidity. So we really focus on firms that are really high quality uh, and have exhibited uh, sustained quality growth. Uh, clearly, you know, we, we only like them when they are cheap. Right. So when there's a lot of fear that's not really associated with the industry or the business, but there's just an overall broad fear. Uh, so they're ignored and unloved. So, so, you know, valuation is, is really important for us. And then recognizing that, look, you can buy a value stock and the value stock could stay depressed or get even more value for a long period of time. You want to blend that in with, um, you know, some sentiment scoring so that, uh, a catalyst is either happening, brewing, or has already happened. And that kind of the mean reversion that the value is finally going to be discovered by markets. So these are kind of the really key statistics uh, we look at. One of the um, 
the follow-up questions I have in mind is you, uh, I, I think I've seen in either a previous podcast or maybe some of your audience, you talk about the importance of localized knowledge in China. Now, I fully uh, agree with that. And I think that applies to a lot of emerging markets. Could you mm-hmm. give us some a sense of how that adds to your process? Or maybe another way to frame this question is at what point within the quantum mental framework does quant shut off and something more judgment fundamental come in from the process standpoint? Absolutely. Uh, especially, um, you know, we're now adding a meaningful ESG component to how we invest in China. And it's not ESG for the sake of, you know, the ESG fat, it's really recognizing that uh, ESG is a tremendous sort of value driver in the in, in selecting Chinese stocks, sort of governance. Uh, mm-hmm. If you get the governance wrong in China, it could mean you own a state-owned enterprise that doesn't really care about the shareholders. And there's some really high-quality state-owned enterprises that act as a very responsible large shareholder, and there are mm-hmm. regional ones that do a bad job. And you really got to understand that. So governance is super important. You know, obviously, governance when it comes to, you know, do you are you dealing with a firm that has a strong management team and with proper checks and balance, or you're dealing with a family-held business where the family may have a lot of connected businesses that siphon off resource from the main company that's gone listing. So governance is huge for us. And oftentimes, those governance research, it's much more sort of a fundamental active manager uh, who does like a really deep dive into the company, into the management. Right? And so we can use the quant process to highlight what to look at. We really need the humans to look deeper at the governance element. And around social, around environmental, you know, China has, uh, you know, Beijing has been fairly active when it comes to identifying social policies, environmental policies. They, you know, announce that in their sort of, you know, five-year plans. And again, uh, because of change with every regime, every administration, you can't use historical data, right? If historically, like this initiative is, is important, well, it, it changes after the government's made some progress or the tension shifts. And so, again, we need an analyst who really looks at, you know, what are top of mind for Beijing when it comes to uh, social policies, right? Whether it's education, right? Whether it's housing prices, uh, what is top of mind for them? You know, they've now committed to hitting uh, carbon neutrality. So we know there's going to be huge amount of subsidies for anything that's green related. And that, again, you can't use quant, you can't use data. You've got to have an analyst on the ground. So at your company, you employ both quantitative and then you put the fundamental overlay on it where you're really looking into these issues like governance, et cetera. That makes so much sense. And your comments regarding state-owned enterprises, because I think most people hear SOE and they're (laughs) running the other way. It is um, really important to understand the difference in SOEs. Do you want to expand on that a bit? Yeah. So, you know, usually um, I think investors are right when they say, yeah, you know, SOEs, you don't want to touch them because they're not really even companies, right? You know, think of like the SOEs as a bit of an equivalent to like our DMVs and, you know, our post office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's generally true, right? If you look at, you know, what's broadly true in emerging markets, a big SOEs, they're, they're very inefficient. Uh, and every few years, there's this political graph and, and corruption. And then those are just not companies you, you, you want to sort of be a you know, uh, owner of a long run. But in China, um, again, you have some of the SOEs that you definitely, you know, don't, 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 don't want to be invested with. But there are some that are called central SOEs, right? And central SOEs are basically, it's kind of easy to identify them. They're basically companies whose names start with like China, 
Right. So in China, in China, you can't just go file for a trademark or a registered company that starts with China, right? Because you know mm-hmm. that is only reserved for the most centrally connected state-owned enterprises, and because there's such a face of the party, um, if those companies do poorly, it means the party has been a bad steward of a national sort of treasure. Uh, and so in some ways, um, it's the A-teams that are assigned to be chairman and CEO uh, of the centrally connected state-owned enterprise. And the people who are running those, they understand every party member is watching them like a hawk. They make a mistake, mm-hmm. they're gone, right? They're, they're probably mm-hmm. in prison. If they do a really good job, they get promoted into much more senior, uh, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, 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 party positions. Uh, and so people are super careful, super responsible. So in a way, this is like what we teach in MBA, you know, textbooks, right? You want a large shareholder who really monitors management and replace them whenever they, you know, sort of misbehave. And this is sort of the classic textbook case of a responsible large shareholder, right? The party being a large shareholder of these state enterprises. So generally tend to be, you know, things we really love as value investors, right? They pay big dividends. Mm-hmm. Right. They're great moat, right? Because they're usually national monopoly. So no one else can be in their business. Right. Mm-hmm. And so whenever they're cheap, right, they're great buys, right? Because you know they're not going away. There's almost a government put, right? If anything happens, and so they they make a mistake. Management is immediately fired. The government comes in and sort of bailed them out with just sort of unlimited loan supports and business supports. Uh so the state-owned enterprises, uh centrally connected state-owned enterprise, actually outperformed the average company in China by about two and a half percent per annum consistently. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That is very interesting data. Speaking of loans, do you have any comments on the banking industry in China? Yeah. So the banking industry in China, uh, there are two things that's quite interesting about them. Uh, you know, so first of all, uh, you know, they are they are generally all state-owned, right? So all the major banks in China are state-owned, uh, and so everything I said about centrally connected state-owned prices apply to them. You know, they have enormous margin, pay massive dividends, and there's a government put, right? Like you know, the, the the Chinese central bank will basically always supply them with unlimited liquidity and backstop any and everything else. So there's a government put on there, making them less risky. And so whenever they're cheap, they're great buys. Uh, but there's something that's quite interesting about uh, these banks is, uh, do they have bad debt? Absolutely. They have bad debt because, you know, they, they do tend to lend to um, other state-owned enterprises and some of the state-owned enterprises are inefficient, right? So like the, the DMV version of the Chinese state-owned enterprise. But their bad loan reserve completely overstate the problem. So when you take a look at Chinese banks, you say, oh, there are all these bad loan reserve, right? Maybe they have even more bad loans than what they're reserving for. This is actually generally not true. So what happens is, again, as a state-owned bank, right, and someone who's running it, uh, you don't want to keep having, you know, record profits, uh, because the government would say, look, you know, bank is supposed to service the economy, right? If you're making record profits, you know, are you taking, you know, keeping too much of the return? So a lot of these banks, you know, whenever they have record years, they, they excessively, you know, stuff that into bad loan reserve. Um, and this is just a way for them to perfectly smooth earnings and don't appear to be way too profitable. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Well, with I hate to, you know, just focus the conversation on China because you have a variety of products and people can go to your website. You have an emerging markets product, you have a developed markets product, and these are actively managed ETFs. And those are the yep. products that US investors can access, I'm assuming. Um yep. 
But tell me, you know, although China, the Chinese market is very interesting, um, I think there's some opportunities there. It is definitely towards the more pessimistic um, side of the market. Are there any other markets that capture some of the ca- same characteristics as China? Like I'm thinking specifically of India as far as market depth and efficiencies, et cetera. Um, what are your thoughts there? So we definitely love India. So a lot of people are talking, oh, you know, might India be the next China? Uh, we're definitely a b- big believer that India might be the next China, but it doesn't become the next China by replacing China. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I think it becomes the next China in the sense that its per capita GDP today is less than half of China's, which means it's got a phenomenal headroom to grow, right? Just like, you know, China's at 13,000 and it's looking at, hey, you know, how does it get caught up to Taiwan and Korea at about, you know, 35,000. India's looking at, oh, how can it continue to grow and emerge and then get caught up to China and then, you know, ultimately with, with other of the, you know, Asian tigers. Uh, so I would say India right now, there's probably too much hype around it. So incorrect hype, right? I think the long-term prospect and long-term thesis is wonderful, but the short-term hype below, you know, we're going to move all the iPhones manufacturing and semiconductor manufacturing and tech manufacturing from China and, and move it to India. Right? That's just unrealistic, right? That's sort of, it's, it's people failing to understand just how long it takes to develop all the ecosystem for high precision, high value add uh, tech manufacturing, right? It, it takes decades and, and, and tens and hundreds of billions, right? We're not just talking about factories. We're talking about all the underlying infrastructure, roads, ports, um, you know, uh, cheap, low-cost, steady electricities and all that. And then, you know, a, a labor force that is specialized for, for manufacturing, you know, clean room manufacturing. You know, India has been successful on its own path, right? It's done a lot of good work in call center outsourcing, Mm-hmm. in software development, outsourcing, things that China doesn't do. And if China ever wanted to do that, it would struggle for decades and trying to figure it out. And same thing, right? So India is on a path uh, and it's sort of mer- emerging along its own path of excellence and comparative advantage. And uh, and then, so I think that is, you know, ultimately uh, where, where India will be successful, right? It's going to deepen its specialization, um, not, you know, oh, you know, all of a sudden India is going to be a, a manufacturing hub for the for the world. Can you speak specifically about your emerging markets product and other markets that may have the depth to access? Like, what markets are you focused on in that emerging markets product? And what else are you seeing? What other markets are interesting? Yeah, so we love emerging markets. Again, right now, emerging markets is cheap because it's had 10 years of underperformance uh, versus the US, right? But of course, people forget, right, from the 90s, to uh for for sort of two set from 2000 to 2010 uh emerging markets outperform uh the u.s handily right and so they all go through cycles and then the starting point like the valuation you pay at the starting point matters a lot right em is a a lot cheaper than the u.s today and that sort of sets it up for at least relative outperformance but when we look at em there are really two parts to em one part is really the asia growth story right it's about you know, a very skilled workforce that can work grueling long hours, uh, that attracts sort of foreign capital, that outsource, you know, manufacturing, uh, outsource, you know, development to these growth economies. And, you know, they'll export, earn forex, build domestic consumption, right? That's kind of the Asian growth story. And that we, we love that about EM and we're very careful in finding, well, who is the next 
China, right? So there was initially, you know, Taiwan and Korea and China. Now we're thinking, you know, it's sort of happening in, in, in Indonesia, in Vietnam. Uh, there's, there's India. So that we like, and we're constantly looking for kind of the next one that's going to really emerge and, and transfer all that value to their listed companies. And so we as investors can participate in. There's the other part, parts that we tend not to like historically. We're starting to like them now, which are the resource based economies in EM. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you talk about, uh, you know, you know, parts of Middle East. You talk about Latin America, Brazil in particular. Um, so those economies historically, I don't like them because um, there's an, you know, there, there's almost like the curse of an endowment, right? They have so much endowment that they don't have to develop, right? They just say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, U.S. big big companies come in here and extract our resources, pay us, you know, our fair share, and you can take everything else. So they underinvest in infrastructure and education and growth, uh, and so on and so forth. And as a result, they simply are are sub subject to these commodities boom. Uh, boom bust cycles and then really no sustained trend growth. And so, you know, you look at Latin America and then, you know, that story uh, checks out, right? It's just no sustained growth. Uh, the per capita GDP just don't ever increase at anything like what we've seen for, for kind of EM Asia. But I'm starting to like them today because um, in, in a funny sort of way, right? Uh, because of China, because China is now competing with the West for resource, right? And because the second comer, the way it builds relationship. Uh, like any second mover is it has to go in and offer a much better value proposition, pay a much better price. So if I am a resource uh, rich economy and I used to only depend on the U.S. and take whatever terms I can get. Now I got another bidder, right? A high bidder who's saying, I'll come in and build you ports and roads and all that. You know, Could I get some mineral extraction right? Could I get in on some of this? Um, and so I think that's likely to accelerate both the development for these economies, which never really invested much in infrastructure, and also they're going to getting get they're getting better terms of trades, and that of course uh, is never a bad thing if you're the seller of scarce commodities. Yeah, it's a it's a really provocative um, idea, especially because I think you know most Western investors kind of you point out emerging markets and the low P's and. Everyone says gets all excited about that, and they, then they think, "Well, let's look through the stocks, and it's you know basic materials and banks and a lot of capital, you know, intensive industries that go boom and bust." And uh, they kind of get turned off by that because they know that the business cycle there is, is similar, tied to commodities. But one of the things that um, I noticed looking at your EM portfolio is you've done a really good job of differentiating. Like I, I see some of the resource-based names that you're referring to, but you've also unearthed some more atypical names. What are you zeroing in on You know, here in terms of alpha signals and what are you seeing to get that kind of differentiated approach? Because I think it's atypical and very fascinating. Yeah. So you know, when we look at uh, kind of our picks in EM, uh, we tend to shy away from things that are kind of household names. Um, you know, the mega cap where all the, you know, investment banks and then sales analysts are covering because you're not going to have as much in terms of edge if you're simply buying names that everyone else is buying that, you know, every analyst is, is sort of covering, right? So, um, again, it's not that we don't love Alibaba and Tencent as wonderful companies. They're big weights in a EM portfolio because they're familiar, comfortable names. Um, and I just don't think 
uh, you need a active manager like myself to help you buy a share of Baba. If you got a view, you can go buy Baba yourself, right? We're mm-hmm. thinking about, well, how do we get you access to a company in Vietnam, right? Who's, you know, kind of the, you know, top partner for Foxconn and who's really, you know, moving up the, 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 the skill curve in terms of making, uh, smartphones and high end electronics, right? We're going to get you access to, you know, someone who's, uh, you know, doing e-commerce in Brazil. So instead of thinking Brazil, it's just Petrobras. We're, we're going to get you access to someone who's trying to create the next Amazon in Brazil that you've not heard of. Uh, we're trying to get you access to the guy who's selling water in China instead of someone who's selling semiconductor in China. So that's, that, that's how we differentiate ourselves. And I think that's also where the opportunities are. Yeah. And so from a quantum mental standpoint, does your process force you into looking at those names, I guess? Does that create the discipline that creates the virtue of making these you know, investments that are a little bit off the beaten path? And then as a follow-up question, what are the challenges from getting that localized research that we discussed earlier? When you traverse in a different country like Brazil or Latin America or Vietnam or, or wherever. Yeah, so um, the benefit of being a, a data-driven quant shop is that it's a lot easier to go uh, find data vendors and buy data uh, operating from, you know, U.S. Uh, and operating from kind of our hubs in, in Asia uh, than uh, having to sort of travel to Brazil and standing outside a factory and try to get a meeting with a CFO or count trucks coming out of the factory, right? Uh, and so as a quant manager, we can get really deep and get to a lot of data uh, without you know, a lot of challenges that a traditional manager might have. And so we can cover so many more companies uh, much more efficiently and effectively. Now, again, we lack the same depth as someone who could actually go stand outside a factory and try to get a meeting with a CFO and talk to factory workers. But the breadth, I think, you know, makes up for it. And also our ability to immediately get access to information uh, is just much higher. Uh, and so, you know, we tend to have a more diversified portfolio and uh, and a ability to get sort of into the less familiar names, you know, harder to visit places. We have data on them, uh, and then we can use sort of data to start to triangulate what's happening. And then this is where, um, once we just pre-screen that, we can bring in sort of more uh, fundamental analysis, say, well, what are we missing, right? You know, when you're looking at this company and no one's really heard of, and this is what the data tells us, um, you know, is there something uh, that we're missing? And then, then a fundamental manager can then sort of work off a much more select list to get concentrated. Yeah. And I would imagine there are fewer institutional managers competing with you for those. That's right. Simply because merging markets have done horribly for 10 years, which makes them a great place to look for value. But also they're going to be a little bit smaller and, and more thinly traded. So it's it makes a ton of sense. Well, that's those are um, it's exciting to learn all of this about the different products you have to offer. Um, I know for developed markets, do you still feel like that? Quantumental overlay or the quantumental approach to investing? Is there enough? Um, is there enough inefficiency in developed markets to exploit anything there? Now, I would say inefficiencies in developed markets tend to be, you know, episodical. Uh, so, U.S. has become more inefficient, uh, you know, by comparison to to itself. Uh, you know, as I was mentioning, uh, historically, the U.S. Retail participation is sub 5%. Um, since COVID, it's jumped to 30%. Right? And then that's very exciting for us 
because um, you know re- retail flow tends to be a a supplier of alpha to discipline managers. Not immediately, right? Because sometimes you know retail flow can create bubbles, right? We all saw what GameStop did to uh, to a few um, professional hedge fund managers. So we know um, yeah. you can be on the other side of retail and then get hurt if you're not careful. But ultimately, you know, retail never win uh, in the long run. Um, you know, they're they're you know they're they're just trading way too much, way too aggressively on too little information, get too leveraged, too concentrated. Um, so I would say uh, episodically, U.S. can become inefficient, and those are opportunities where um, I think a disciplined uh, quant manager, a fundamental manager, uh, could have an edge. Uh, and so we still like applying that process as long as the process, you know, we, we, we use machine learning, right? The machine is right. sort of looking at, is this an environment, you know, for us to express our view aggressively? And when there are very little retail and it's just all, you know, experienced high frequency, experienced quant manager, experienced stock pickers, uh, we're going to be very benchmark-like and just participate in what the market will naturally bring for us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when there are sort of, you know, uh, largest agreement between retail and the professionals and their, you know, unreasonable valuation levels will tend to take on larger bets. In many cases, we'll get a lot more value tilted in our portfolio, willing to take some pain as a value investor, hoping to avoid, uh, kind of a, you know, uh, you know, bubble bursting in the market. Sure. And I'm assuming your products are long only. Would your fundamental only. process work on the short side? Uh, I'm sure, you know, if someone's uh, happy to come in and uh, and uh, do the shorting uh, for, for our portfolio or license our signal to do a shorting, that it'll do fairly well. Now, I'm a long-term mm-hmm. investor. And so, you know, I, I tend to, you know, think more along sure. the line of a Warren Buffett, right? You, you want to sort of compound and let the market help you out. And you, mm-hmm. if you can add alpha, it's great. You compound on top of that. But, you know, shorting against um, a generally rising market, uh, even if it's a less attractive stock, um, you know, that, that's, you know, that, that, that's just not a recipe for sort of long-term compounding. Right. Well, this is a really silly question, but it will highlight how non-tech I am as a person, but with AI and machine learning, I mean, I'm sure people are just applying quant types of investing more often. I mean, Scott and I have quant screens that we run before we do analysis on a company. Um, Probably not nearly as robust as what you do, but do you worry that with the proliferation of machine learning and more AI and people having access to that, that it'll take away the edge of what you're doing or, and also how are you applying that at your, at your business? Yeah. So uh, we definitely have adopted uh, machine learning uh, very early on. We recognize that, you know, the ideal outcome is of course, um, you know, always use the most advanced technology to help the human make good decisions, right? So we're always very cognizant that this is not about, oh, the human's not good enough, so we let the machine make all the decisions. This is about, there are a lot of things that humans sort of don't want to do anymore, uh, mm-hmm. or we just want don't want to do it 8,000 times a day. And so we get a very smart machine to do it fast and do it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's really how we think about machine learning, AI. Those are tools to make our analysts and our portfolio managers just more effective, more successful. So they focus on where there's a real edge for the human. Uh, it's not about, oh, you know, the human's no good. So, you know, 
let the machine take over, right? It's not a man versus machine competition. This is really a, a partnership. That's how we think about it. Um, now, I would say uh, what we realize is, um, you know, if you're really going to get value out of using AI, using machine learning, you got to understand what does it not do, right? A lot of people sort of uh, glorify what machine learning can do. And then, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of myth out there, right? Uh, we, at least today, don't have machines that can think for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't have machines that can outthink a experienced portfolio manager, right? We have a machine where if you teach them enough formulas from a, you know, from the CFA curriculum from an MBA textbook, uh, you, you sort of feed them enough sort of patterns that everyone knows, it'll repeat those, right? It's very good at sort of repeating what is known. But it isn't today smart enough to go, oh, you know, there, there are many things that, that um, don't actually, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's not actually um, sort of taught in the books and they can mm -hmm. figure it out or there, or there are many things we taught in the book that don't work anymore, right? Uh, and so machines is not quite uh, there yet. So you don't want to just trust it and, and trust the black box um, because, you know, look, machines look at patterns and we know a lot of patterns are in the past, right? They're not going to repeat, right? Times right. have changed. People have changed. Regulations have changed. Markets become more efficient. So if the machine sort of just look at data without understanding mm -hmm. general equilibrium and, and market efficiency, they'll make a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Accounting changes too. So it's not yeah. static. There are new accounting standards every year. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. My last question for you today, Jason, is just how investors should think about currency exposure. And, and do you hedge any currency um, risk in your portfolios? Or how do you think about that? So I would say generally for developed markets, um, we, we tend to advocate hedging. Uh, because in developed markets, look, you know, the currency sort of just mostly fluctuates. There's no reason to believe any particular currency should strengthen versus any other currency over time. Uh, and if you don't hedge it, it just drives more volatility. And especially for people who, you know, you're an American investor, you're investing overseas, um, but you consume in the U.S. dollar. So you really don't need to take U.S. dollar risk. But when it comes to emerging markets, we're a big proponent for not hedging. And the reason is, I think there's a famous saying that says, um, you know, diversification means you want to buy things that are short-term negatively correlated, but long-term, you know, both of these assets should have a positive expected return. So if you think about emerging market currencies and emerging market stock market, um, they're negatively correlated because a lot of the emerging markets are export-oriented, whether it's resource or it's high-value-add technology. If the currency is weak, export goes up. And it's generally very good for the export sector, which dominates their their stock market. So short-term negative correlation, but over the long horizon, um, emerging market currency tend to strengthen. You look at Taiwan, you look at South Korea, you look at, of course, Japan, when it was a emerging economy. Now it's come become developed. You look at renminbi. As you export, right, and earn a lot of forex, your currency strengthens. Right? And that's just how economics work. That's how currency works. So you definitely want to hold on to EM currencies. Uh, and EM stocks because short-term negative correlation, but there's a thesis for positive returns for both over time. I see. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Do you have any final questions? I do. It's uh, it's actually the trickiest question because there's no <laughs> right answer. But um, let's just mm -hmm. talk about your views on cell discipline uh, in terms of portfolio turnover. Like, what drives you to leave a stock? Is it finding a better one? Is it Thesis has changed. How does the quantum mental factor get involved? Just any any thoughts there? 
Yeah, I think particularly in EM investing, the sell discipline can oftentimes be far more important than the buy discipline because uh, in in EM, right, it's not it's not like you got a great company and you hold on to it forever because oftentimes a great company, once people discover it, a bubble forms and and the price goes completely unreasonable. Uh, and so you've earned your alpha from picking the right stock and then you're going to earn additional alpha from other people going crazy about it. And that means you definitely want to take profit and and sell and and you know maybe even get to a underway or outright remove the stock completely from the portfolio, uh, and that's just because you know, emerging markets, um, you know, the volatility, the excess volatility is far larger than the true underlying fundamental movement, uh, and you got to you know you you got to uh, at some point you know take your gain even if there are taxes involved uh and sell out a stock a company you love simply because the price has become unreasonable so this is absolutely critical in the em awesome well thank you so much for addressing this question these questions for, to us today um jason is there anything else that you want investors to know about you or understand about your strategy well um i would say you know we we are quants that over time have uh, ate a lot of humble pies and evolved to become quantum mental investors by right? recognizing that, sure, we have a lot of advantage over traditional stock pickers because we can take the emotions out of the process by introducing more discipline through data and machine. Uh, we can cover more stocks. Just again, you know, machines are good at breath. Mm -hmm. But we also realize that there's a lot of the art in investing. Right. And there's a lot of this has not happened before. And this time it is truly different. Uh, not only a, a, a stock picker, right? Who's on the ground, uh, reading tea leaves, um, and doing the art part of investing. So we have deep respect for that and always looking to incorporate that either learning from them and trying to, you know, model it or bringing them on board to, to, to help with the process. Uh, and that same humility is where we also recognize that we could do a lot of right things, investing in the right stocks, uh, and in the short run. Uh, the market will disagree with us, right? It's not that sure. we are wrong, but it's that mm -hmm. you can be right and still lose a lot of money over a short period of time. So, you know, never take that too personally and, and definitely uh, never, um, you know, leverage out of hubris because you think you're right and the market's wrong, right? The market doesn't really care about that. Yes, it can take you out of the game permanently. <laughs> leverage yes. can. Um well, we certainly appreciate your time today. Please tell us where our listeners can go to read more of your research. You're very well published and to learn more about um, your investment opportunities. Well, uh, Lauren, Scott, thank you um, for, for, for giving me a, a chance to, to, um, to you know, expand my social media reach. Everyone, please do uh, follow me on LinkedIn. That's the primary social media platform I use. Uh, I put out a newsletter called The Bridge, generally trying to bridge, you know, developed market with the emerging markets, helping you understand what's happening in, uh, you know, emerging Asia, especially. Uh, you can always uh, sort of Google me and find uh, many of the papers. Um, they're, they're the more math in nature that's uh, sort of out there in the public domain. Uh, and if you find something interesting that you want to talk about, email me or LinkedIn mail me and I'm generally pretty good about responding. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jason. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening to Investing the Templeton Way. Please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. 
To view the show notes and resources mentioned in today's show, head to investingthetempletonway.com.